0: Hello, my name is Sam McBradley. I'm from Northern Ireland. Um, I have been writing children's books for, oh, more than 40 years, about 60 or 70 of them at least, and uh, I'm going to read you a couple of stories.
1: First, tell us a little bit about your background. What kind of books did you read as a child, and what influence did that have on you becoming a writer?
0: I um, have always I had an inclination to be a writer, and I was a great reader when I was young. But I grew up in the early 50s. I was born in 1943. And I would say, and times were hard. I mean, I would say I didn't eat a banana until I was about 11, you know. Um, if you went down to the shop for a packet of sweets, you had to have a ration coupon. You know, you didn't, you, you didn't just hand over your throaty bit. You had to have a little coupon which entitled you to buy the sweets as well. Things were scarce, including books. So what was my early reading? You'll hardly believe this, but um, by the time I was 12, I had read about a dozen. It must have been, well, maybe six, six or seven anyway. Zane Grey Westerns. You know, This was because my father was a great fan of Zane Grey loved reading westerns and he would leave them lying about the house and i would pick them up and i would read them and i got into i would say i got into uh, uh, into books in that way gradually um more and more things became available specifically for children like enid Blyton's um series of books you know the ship of adventure and all that you know but on the whole i would i would say that um My interest in children's literature just derives from the fact that I am basically an introspective character. And I hardly know what I'm thinking until I see it written down. (laughs) So uh, even at Trinity, I used to carry a kind of a book about with me where I would record Trinity College in Dublin, university, where I would record all my thoughts. And um, the first things I wrote after uh, Trinity uh, was a series of articles about local history because I trained as a historian. And then my first book was published in 1976. And since then I have been writing, as you say, books for children of all ages. And uh, the Mark Time book, Mark Time was the first one, 1976. And it was billed as a fast moving story set in Northern Ireland You remember the bombs and the bullets and the deaths and the sectarian warfare, you know. But actually, it's a love story. It's a pre-puberty love story about a little boy who's eleven. And he knows that at the end of the year, he's going to be going to one school, and the little girl that he quite fancies is going to another school. And um, that aspect of it is obviously not highlighted in the the blurb, but that's what it is. It's actually. you know, a very tender little story like that.
1: Your writing career took a very different direction when Guess How Much I Love You was published. How did this book come about?
0: What happened was I, my publisher said to me one time when I was over in London, Sam, why don't you try a picture book? And uh, I thought you needed to um, know an illustrator to write a picture book and she says no Sam we haven't got people who can write a powerful story using hardly any words at all so I said well you regard yourself as an old pro by now Sam so I, I thought yeah I'll write a picture book and I went back to an, a little fragment of an idea that I had used in an earlier book and I thought I really like that little episode that would make a lovely, lovely picture book and so I worked that up into a picture book. And I expected that picture book to go like all the others, all the other books. You know, Might get five years out of it, might get six. Then after that, you'll not be able to buy it in the shops anymore. You know. So I was at an award ceremony in uh, another award ceremony. Uh, lots of my books have won awards, but you can't get them anymore. <laughs> I was at an award ceremony in um, uh, London. Where well, the book didn't win, but my wife was talking to my agent at that time, and my agent said, Sam, or said Marilyn, is he disappointed? And Marilyn said, who knows me awfully well? Gina, now that he's, now that he's here and he, and he hasn't won, he'll be raging, but it won't on him tomorrow morning, you know? Gina said, the agent, But doesn't he know he's a winner already? It has sold 100,000 copies. And Marilyn said, well, he doesn't know that. Now, that was then. And within a year, I think it had sold a million copies. And it's now at 28. And um, just a fortnight ago, Walker Books in London informed me that a Latin American country Again, a social working with the government. I think a philanthropic organisation working with the government um, and operating within the confines, I suppose, of a social program type of thing. Ordered one million copies of Guess How Much I Love You, just like that. Just you know, somebody walks in off the street and orders a million copies. You know, so that's how successful the book became, and that the book was published in ninety four and it's now, what, 2011? And I keep saying to Marilyn, you know, this can't go on. But it does go on, it just doesn't stop. They keep selling, you know, the million-odd copies a year.
1: When you wrote Guess How Much I Love You, did you realize that it was such a universal story?
0: I did come to see how (laughs) <laughs> How universal it was. It travels everywhere. Three years ago they, they uh, published a Chinese edition with a print run of 10,000 copies. And uh, the print run this year is for a quarter of a million. And by the end of next year they'll have shown over a third. It's a book that travels, as you say. And I think it even travels back in time. You know, there's nothing in the book to date it. I can imagine, you know, Miriam playing "Guess How Much I Love You" with little Moses on the banks of the Nile, for example. You know, um, the only thing that dates it in Anita's drawings, because there are no clothes, um, there are no, um, there's no uh, furniture, there's no knives and forks, there's no tables. You know, it's, it's two hairs in a field. Is a strand of barbed wire, uh, a strand of wire, you know. Um, which dates it, I must admit, post-industrial revolution, you know. But apart from that, the thing, the illustrations are actually timeless as
1: well. Will you read an excerpt from Guess How Much I Love You for us?
0: Would you like me to read it to you now? Okay. Here we go. Guess How Much I Love You written by Sam McBratney, illustrated by Anita Jaram. Little Nut Brown Hare, he was going to bed, held on tight to Big Nut Brown Hare's very long ears. He wanted to be sure that Big Nut Brown Hare was listening. Guess how much I love you, he said. Oh, I don't think I could guess that said Big Nut-Brown Hare. This much, said Little Nut-Brown Hare, stretching out his arms as wide as they could go. Big Nut-Brown Hare had even longer arms. But I love you this much, he said. Hmm, that is a lot, thought Little Nut-Brown Hare. I love you as high as I can reach said Little Nut Brown Hare. I love you as high as I can reach, said Big Nut Brown Hare. That is quite high, thought Little Nut Brown Hare. I wish I had arms like that. Then Little Nut Brown Hare had a good idea. He tumbled upside down and reached up the tree trunk with his feet. I love you all the way up to my toes, he said. And I love you all the way up to your toes, said Big Nut-Brown Hare, swinging him up over his head. I love you as high as I can hop, laughed Little Nut-Brown Hare, bouncing up and down. But I love you as high as I can hop, smiled Big Nut-Brown Hare. And he hopped so high that his ears touched the branches above. That's good hopping, thought Little Nut-Brown Hare. I wish I could hop like that. I love you all the way down the lane, as far as the river, cried Little Nut Brown Hare. I love you across the river and over the hills, said Big Nut Brown Hare. That's very far, thought Little Nut Brown Hare. He was almost too sleepy to think anymore. Then he looked beyond the thorn bushes, out into the big dark night. Nothing could be further than the sky.
1: Where do your stories come from? Is there a particular approach that you take?
0: There's no such thing as a formula. You cannot say writing a picture book, good ones, is a formula. But I do have a, an approach which I, which I tend to take, and I would summarise it by saying I tend to look for significant moments of interaction between a big one and a wee one, usually parent and child. I try to render that, uh, I try to describe that um, interaction truthfully, and I try to render it with a light touch. That, that would basically sum up my approach to writing. At the heart of all these books, there is a, a kind of, there is an, an emotional content, not like the wonderful, um, what about the caterpillar, what do you call that? Uh, uh, no, famous picture book about the caterpillar. The, the Hungry Caterpillar, yes. There isn't a lot of, emotion, of emotional content in that. I mean, there's a world of difference between that book and that book, but that's, you know, it's a different approach you know i'm looking for these moments of interaction and trying to describe them
1: how is writing picture books different from writing novels
0: when when my editor warned me about the uh, writing the picture books uh, or said to me why don't you write a picture book uh, she did say people think it's easy sam <laughs> but it's not easy and the different. It took me six months. Um, the difference in approach is enormous, because it's an entirely different discipline. And for those six months, every word you write is fighting for its place on the page. You know, um, there's only three hundred and ninety-five words in guess, and uh, you know sometimes. Um, so the, the, the longer novels for children would be, I mean, that, that thick, you know, sort of 80,000 words. So the discipline is, is so different. There has to be, one of the big problems you really have to solve is names. It's a rather, like, uh, rather like Dickens, you know, I mean, I mean, one of the great things about Dickens is the name, the names, you know, his choice of names, you know, Uriah Heap. Just an unctuous, awful creature, you know. Um, but the name of the, car- of the of the of the of the uh, hero, if you like, in the picture book is going to be repeated so often, you know. Said little nut brown hair. Said big nut brown hair. You've got to get that right, and that took a long time. Um, I knew I didn't want it to be bears because there were a lot of bear stories about at that time. And uh, I was just sitting in the kitchen one day when. From somewhere in that remote land between the ears, out popped little nut brown hair, and where that came from, I have no idea. But it's just so perfect, you know. And I love hairs anyway. And Anita Geram has so beautifully captured the ugly, awkward, gangliness of hairs. I mean, they're not bunnies. They're, you know. I mean, people call them rabbits, and I get and about that. You know, they're hairs and uh, it, it's uh, you know it's it's one of the triumphs of the of the of the book i think to get the name little nut brown hair and to have them so wonderfully rendered by uh, anita
1: you and illustrator anita Jeram have collaborated on another warm and reassuring picture book not with hares but with bears tell us about your all my favorites
0: Yes, later on. Yes, after about, about five or six years. I, then I did do Bears. Yes, I did You're All My Favourites. And she, had, she was able to create a different style for the, um, for the book You're All My Favourites. And it's, um, it is one of my favourites. I just love it. I have three children, of course. You know, so that's where that comes from. You know. Would you like me to read you that one as well? You're All My Favourites. Written by Sam McBradney. Illustrated by Anita Jiran. Once upon a time, there was a mother bear, a father bear, and three baby bears. A first baby bear, a second baby bear, and a third baby bear. Whoever tucked them in at night, always said the same thing to them. You are the most wonderful baby bears in the whole wide world. One night, after their mummy bear had tucked them in, and after she had said, you are the most wonderful baby bears in the whole wide world, the baby bears began to wonder. But how do you know? They asked their mummy bear. How do you know we are the most wonderful baby bears in the whole wide world? Because your daddy told me, he said, mommy bear. When your daddy saw you on the night that you were born, he said, and I remember it very well, he said, those are the nicest baby bears I have ever seen. They are the nicest baby bears anyone has ever seen. That was a good answer. The three baby bears snuggled down as content As could be. (laughs) But one day, the first baby bear began to think. He wondered if the other two bears were better than he was. They had patches after all, and he did not. Maybe his mummy really, really liked patches. And the second baby bear began to wonder. Maybe Daddy loves the other two more than me, she thought. They were boy bears after all, and she was not. And the third baby bear began to wonder. I'm only the littlest, he thought. Everybody's bigger than me. So that night, the three baby bears asked their daddy bear, but which one of us do you like most? Who is your favorite? We can't all be the best.
1: Real feelings are presented while you pattern and play with language. Talk about your use of words.
0: You're right. I just love messing about with words. You know, it's like, you know, as did, what do you call them? Um, Alice in Wonderland. Who was that, you know? The time has come, the walrus said, to speak of many things, of shoes and ships and sealing wax and cabbages and kings. Sealing wax, you know. I haven't ever used sealing wax, but I just love saying that. And here's one of mine. OK? If you've you know, if you, if you got one moose, that's a moose, right? If you have two mooses, the word mooses is ridiculous. So I have this suggestion, OK? Um, if mouses are mice and gooses are geese, what excuses have mooses for not being meese? Officially, there's no such word as meese, right? But you know, don't you agree? Mice sounds better than moose? So there's a little example of absurdity, you know. Um, a little poem called Fractions. I've always thought that the giraffe is the most absurd animal on the planet, fractions. And the illest, this, is, this is from a little book of poems that you can't get over here. But um, the illustrator has drawn a giraffe. And beside the giraffe, a ladder, and a guy on a ladder with a measuring tape. It's called fractions, well, as in one third, two thirds, and so on. Anyway. How much of a giraffe is neck? I've heard some say a third. It might be hard to check, but to my eye, at least one half of a giraffe is neck. <laughs> Playing about with words like that, I just love it, you know. You're, you're, you're quite right. So, whereas With many of the books, you're aiming just to describe something as truthfully as possible, you know. It's also possible to be off the wall and zany. I like that side of it too. I do try to get humor into everything, and humor does occur. I mean, some of them are bizarre. I mean, I've just observed from life some of those bizarrely humorous moments happen at, you know, even at funerals, you know. uh, So, I mean, you can't keep humor out of life. And you got, you, but you, you can't go overboard either. Um, I, don't, I, I do tend to make the humour as naturally as possible and to make it clear as in the moose thing, you know, where, where I'm being just, you know, ridiculous. Um, but yes, humour does play a big part in, in, in the things that I write, including the longer novels. Yeah, so, some, of them, some of them it's hard to get humour into.
1: You have an interest in folk tales and other traditional literature. What influences has this had on your writing for children?
0: I've been collecting these stories in one voice please, for 30 years. You know, old stories that you know, everybody's familiar with, like the Pied Piper, right through to ones they aren't familiar with. And unfortunately, and I'm ashamed of this, being, being a historian, you know, I haven't got records of where I found them. You know, but I would just, I would write them out you know, and um, so I don't know whether but I, I, and then I would say, from Hungary, there's one from Hungary called not speaking. This pair have an argument they refuse and uh, to speak to one another, and they they sort of come to an agreement that whoever speaks first will they leave none, neither of them will shut the door, and they agree that the one who speaks first will be the one who shuts the door. Well, the door stays open, you know because You know, there's a battle to be won. So in come a horde of mice, and the horde of mice eat through a sack of their their corn. Did he speak? Did she speak? Did either of them shut the door? No. Next day, a lone wolf comes slinking by, attracted by the open door, eats all the smoked fish that are hanging in the chimney. Does he speak? Does she speak? Did either of them shut their door? No. No. A big bear comes lumbering out of the forest through the stooping to enter through the unshut door, and he picks you know a plank there and a beam there, and the house falls down. There isn't even a door left. Him and her are sitting up in bed, looking up at the sky in amazement. Do you know? And uh, we don't know who spoke first, but let's hope that um, they were thinking. Uh, maybe I should have spoken. I should have said something. You know. I should have shut the door. Now, is there anybody in the world who hasn't been not speaking? Brother not speaking to sister, best friend not speaking to best friend, school friend not speaking to husband, not speaking to wife, you know? And the story just had such an echo of, it caught so well that the absurdity of that situation. And I wrote a little picture book then called, I'm sorry. And although you wouldn't see the link necessarily between the two stories. That's what inspired it. Because the two children fall out. And it ends up, if my, if my friend was as sad as I am sad, this is what she would do. She would come and say, I'm sorry. And I would say sorry, too. You know. so The link between that ancient story and that modern picture book is right there.
1: Was there a tradition of sharing books and stories when you were growing up? Did you have a tradition with your own children?
0: Well, I made up stories every night for the children on the way up to bed. You know, it said, bedtime for all monkeys, up you go. And I, I made up this character called Wise Eyes. And he had Kobe the wolf, and there was Gormless the gorilla, and there was, uh, there was a Rigor Mortis, who was a rat. And every night I would tell him a story about those characters, you know. Yes, is the answer to that one. And um, but back home, no. I, I remember saying my my mother. This is this is this is true. I can hardly believe this is true, but this this is true. My, my I remember my mother saying to me. Like, what are you going to do? You know, with you know, or, or, uh, later on in life or whatever. You know. And I said, Well, I might be a, might be a poet. There was a long pause. And she said, you know, you can be put in jail for stealing other people's words. <laughs> I just, I mean, I, I, you know, looking back on that, I asked myself, "Is that, it is true, you know, but that was the attitude in our family. You, how could you be a poet? How could you write words, you know? So um, the answer to that is no. Having said that, my father was a very, um, uh, I would say, you know, avid reader himself. I've mentioned the Zane Grey books, and he didn't read anything highbrow. But he used to work as a compositor at the Belfast Telegraph. That's setting the print, you know, for that's all, go- that's all gone now. Obviously, they do it a different way. But he would set the print. And my brother and I used to go through the paper looking for <laughs> mistakes. You know, and then we blamed them on him. We said, look, Daddy, you made a mistake there. You know. Uh, but there wasn't a tradition of books or book reading in the family, you know, my mother read *Woman's Zone or Wom- Woman, *Woman's Weekly* or *Woman*. So did I. You know. <laughs> there was nothing. You know, there was nothing else. You know, I read those as well. *People's Friend* and. Um, uh, but there wasn't a tradition in our house of telling stories. To, you, you know, but uh, in my family, stories are paramount. You know, although when my children grew up, and went to university, what did they study? Computer science physics imperial college business studies belfast university you know there's not a historian among them but they are readers yes they are
1: what are you working on currently
0: i'm working on um, uh, uh, i'm working on a form another collection of four little stories about the nut brown hairs called Here, There, and Everywhere. The, late, the latest stories about the hares is called, I love you, I guess I much I love you, all year round. Short little pieces in which the hares explore. Uh, I mean, which There are little, ad, little adv- adventures based on the seasons. Here, There, and Everywhere explores their space. Um, they, one's called um, On Cloudy Mountain. One's The Far Field. One's the hiding tree and one's coming home. And there's a little adventure related in each. For example, they go up Cloudy Mountain and Big Nut Brown Hair sees, you know, little Nut Brown Hair's busy <laughs> blowing dandelions. You know, did they do that over here? You know, blow dandelions for time? <laughs> He's you know. And then Big Nut Brown Hair says, you know, we better go now. There's, uh, there's, um, there's a cl- there, there, we, there, we could be in trouble. He does, and and Little Nurbin Hair said, I'm still blowing, you know." He's raging about the fact that he has to go, but Big Nurbin Hair makes him go. So down they come, and uh, you know, four little stories like that in which they explore the space around them. I love those. I really think those are very nice. And I'm also tidying up a historical novel I have about Dorothy Osborne, who lived in the 17th century. She was the wife of Sir William Temple, um, a diplomat at that time. And uh, the story is based on her diaries. She wrote a diaries of her relationship with Temple. And it's just the most wonderful. Uh, when I came across the diaries, I was absolutely astonished. I did a radio play about, about that. I wrote, um, uh, it was called Coward of the Heart. And, um, I'm working on transposing that into a, I'm trying to get somebody interested in that to publish it as a novel. But So that's what I'm on at the moment.
1: You've also written a book about ghosts. Can you tell us a bit about that spooky story?
0: The ghost story was one of the few early stories of mine that, were, that was published over here in the States. Um, it was the Ghost of a Hungry House Lane, Hungry House Lane is a, a lane near us, and it, you know, hungry house, it sounds like Hungry House Lane. I think there might be a connection with the famine there, but I've always been intrigued by the name. So I wrote a story called The Ghost of Hungry House Lane, but I don't like the horror genre. Uh, I don't like fantasy genre. I love science fiction, but I, I hate, I just cannot see myself sitting from 8 o'clock at night, which is when I work, to 11 o'clock at night Having been a teacher, you know, I always worked after tea. I, can't, I couldn't see myself sitting there trying to squeeze out of my imagination something horrible, you know, or something that's going to shock and amaze people. You know, that doesn't appeal to me at all. So when I wrote a ghost story, I wrote it with what you're saying, a light touch. And what happens is the ghosts themselves, uh, these, the children are pretty awful. And when they hear that the house that they're staying in is haunted, they say, Great, you know, let's find them. You know, let's find the ghosts, not, not the other way around, Or oh, let's get out of here.
1: What do you love most about writing children's books?
0: I just love the idea that, you know, somewhere in the world tonight, you know, some mum or dad is going to be reaching down a copy of a book that I wrote. And reading it to the most precious thing they have in the world, you know for writers that's the Holy Grail, and uh, that gives me enormous pleasure. I, I just love that, that idea of being connected with all these anonymous people too, you know, and that's, that's what forget about the royalties, you know <laughs> one thing they're, they're nice too, but it's the connection that you make with this enormous readership which is thrilling, you know, so anybody listening, you know. Get out, get, 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 get back home, you know. Dig out that manuscript you might have there in the top drawer or that idea you might have rattling about the back of your mind. Get it down on paper. Start now. Do it.
1: What advice do you have for aspiring writers?
0: I mean, it is hard to make a living. Uh, You need to get lucky, like I got lucky, or like J.K. Rowling got lucky, you know, uh, with the Harry Potter books. You know, you need luck. So, you're not going to make a fortune, probably, but it is a tremendously satisfying thing to do if you're a certain type of person. For example, as I was saying, when I went to that theme park, I just thought to myself, I could write a book here. I was standing in the classroom one time. It must have been November day, half past three, beginning to get dark in Northern Ireland. And I noticed a star in the sky and I thought to me they were all doing a bit of work for a change behind me, you know, quiet. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to take this lot on a school trip up there, you know? And um, I went home and I started the book that night and it became the School Trip to the Stars. And that's another little book that I'm very fond of, which nobody can get a hold of anymore. <laughs> so I would, I would say um, that I would stress the sheer satisfaction there is out of creating this product. And when, when you try to get, get it published, there will be frustration. You're going to run up what I call the sorrow of the rejection slip. Publishers are going to send it back. If they even bother to send it back, and they're going to say, I'm sorry, but this is not for us at the present time. You know? And the best piece of advice there is just keep writing, keep going. you know.